Welcome to the ninth episode of the Ithacast. I'm Tuck Singwit. And I'm Seth Murta. And I'm Catherine Salantano with the Drug Policy Alliance. So, uh, Catherine, uh, we've usually started off these podcasts in the, pa- in the past with uh, our guests introducing themselves and talking a little bit about their background. So um, you're doing some very interesting work locally in the community. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you, you came to, to Ithaca and how you got involved with this line of work. Sure. So um, a little over 10 years ago when I just graduated high school, um, I actually ended up in a residential facility myself. It was a dual diagnosis facility, um, which means that there were people that were there for addiction as well as for psychiatric issues. Um, And so I was there presumably for psychiatric issues, but most of the people that were there were also there or or were there for drugs or they were there for drugs and something else. Um, And something that I noticed uh, very quickly that absolutely broke my heart was that people um, that were there as discriminated against as people were who had who were given psychiatric diagnoses were that for people that uh, had a had a struggle that was related to a substance that was currently illegal, um, that in many ways it was illegal for them to exist. So that got me doing a lot of reading. Um, it got me doing uh, a lot of research. I started to get into some advocacy, um, and I eventually decided to go back to college, um, went back to college, studied psychology, continued to be involved in advocacy along the way. Um, done a variety of things, um, you know, worked in a neuroscience lab, worked in Capitol Hill, worked on a state prevention board in Vermont, and ended up here. And now I'm a policy coordinator um, with the New York Policy Office of the Drug Policy Alliance, which I am just so excited to be doing. Um, we are the premier um, national advocacy organization that's working to end the war on drugs um, and create a paradigm where we focus on compassion, science, health, and human rights. Um, and uh, yeah, and so I'm I'm up here in Ithaca. I was really excited to um, do work outside of a, a more highly populated area. I was living in New York City for a while while I was finishing school, um, but I had lived in rural Vermont for a while, um, and I missed it terribly. So, uh, and there's just such exciting things that are going on in, in here here uh, here in Ithaca specifically. So I'm really excited to be um, doing this work, living up here. Um, and I'm happy to unpack any of that more, but I'll stop there. So what are some of the things, like specific things that you've been working on in your role locally? Here in Ithaca? Yeah. Um, so a lot of my work has centered around um, providing technical assistance for various components of the Ithaca plan. Um, and as folks probably know, the Ithaca plan was the product um, of the Municipal Drug Policy Committee, which Mayor Myrick convened uh, several years ago at this point, And they re- released this report um, that had over 20 recommendations um, to address uh, the harms that are associated with substance use and also the harms that are associated with um, the drug war itself. Um, and th- so several that I have probably spent the most time focused on include um, advocacy for a local safer consumption space. Um, folks may have heard of that uh, called a supervised injection facility. Um, they, they go by several different names. Um, and also I've uh, done a lot of work around the law enforcement assisted diversion program, mm-hmm. um, which is a pre-arrest diversion program, um, that is, uh, implemented within a harm reduction frame and that specifically also tries to tackle racial disparities, um, in the, within, uh, the criminal justice system. So for example, um, it, some, it, it contrasts itself from say a drug court in that the arrest never takes place. So you're diverting mm-hmm. somebody from, mm-hmm involvement with the criminal justice system in, in a more, uh, in a more complete way. Um, and you're also not prescribing specific, 
uh, treatment program, or I'm sorry, treatment uh, regimens to folks. Folks are, are given a lot more um, ownership um, and freedom to really decide what sorts of supports they feel ready for and that they would find um, helpful. So it's also a lot less prescriptive, um, and it's uh, has some pretty good data coming out of it, as does the safer consumption space. So what's the status? Of, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about both of these, and and these were probably the two biggest things that came out of the Ithaca plan. I mean, at least the ones that I think have gotten the most attention. The supervised. Uh, you're saying it's safer consumption space? Safer, consumption, safer space. consumption space got a lot of attention. There was a lot of national attention and media attention. Um, but we've also, you know, the county and the city have also been working to try to implement the, the lead policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's the status of that currently? Of which one? Of the, the lead policy. Of the lead policy. Like, where um, does it stand with the city and the county? So over the last year, um, we convened so basically there's a number of different components to lead um, and one of them are these these governing bodies that create a unique structure um, that uh, permit mutual accountability um, between different types of stakeholders between uh, between different parts of the community and that also permit a sort of collaboration that we find or you know that in other programs has been very helpful um, so before you actually launch the lead program you need to get those governing bodies um, up and running. So basically, you have a group that's sort of like a board of directors called the policy coordinating group that includes sort of the executive decision makers um, from different parts of the of the community, from county government, from city government, um, business representation, um, as well as uh, some community leadership as well. And then you have something called the operations work group, which develops policies and protocols. Um, so for example, they would develop what the diversion criteria is. And then after launch, that group shifts into more of a case management body. Um, and then also, while not implemented in, in every jurisdiction, um, Ithaca has selected to have something called a community leadership team, which is a place uh, where um, community members with different backgrounds, whether it's um, you know relationships with community groups, directly direct um, lived experience of the system or uh, or, or yeah direct of, of the system or of some of the issues that might um, lead someone to become a master of the criminal justice system um, can then have a meaningful uh, involvement with the governance of the program as well and also serve as a liaison to um, both pro- get feedback from the community and and re- give feedback back out. So those three governing bodies um, are essentially up and running. Um, and so right now we're just in a phase where we're trying to match funding with hiring um, a service provider. And so... And the funding seems like it's been the biggest piece. I know that, you know, just from being on the council, that's that's what we've been discussing is the how much money the county's putting in versus how much money the city's putting in and all these kind of discussions. And what the numbers would be. So, like, we now have maybe a hundred grand tucked away, um, but I think the need is bigger than that, 150 a year going forward or something. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, total funding, I, it's, I'm not in, in my role, uh, I was serving as program manager. I'm more of a facilitating role. I'm not a decision making role. So I don't want to speak on behalf of the program. Um, but you know, there are different models that you could look, look at in terms of, um, how you would structure staffing. There are really two components, uh, two, two staffing components that are at, at, at a bare bones launch. So you need somebody who can do some of the administrative coordinating work that involves coordinating these different bodies. Um, and then you need, of course, case managers that are directly working with clients. So the other program that we we fund is the community outreach worker um, with Tammy Baker's position, which is essentially 
like an on the street uh, social worker who's engaging with people who might have uh, mental health problems or substance abuse problems. And and it's been, I think the most stakeholders would agree that it's been a successful program to date. And so there was a push to expand it. I mean, do you see that there could be some overlap with, with what Tammy's doing with the community outreach worker position? Cause that does seem like it, it's potentially pre arrest, right? Um, just in the sense that Tammy's working pretty closely with, the police department already. And there's cases where, um, she might be able to deescalate situations before they'd ever lead to an arrest or Tammy could hook people up with services if they need them. Is that something that you see that could potentially fit with lead? So the neat thing about lead is that it tries to uh, fit and collaborate with everything. Um, and that's part of why you have these different, the governing bodies and then the operations work group, which brings all of those different folks into the room at the same time. Um, and I think that any, any support, services, whether it's like, you know, stat, Southern Tier AIDS program doing syringe exchange or Tammy doing the incredible work that she does with, with outreach, um, or, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, a place like ADC or Alcohol and Drug Council, um, places that are providing any sort of support or a housing support provider, all of those things, because we know that one of the primary drivers of, um, a problematic relationship with substances or substance use disorder are these different social determinants. Um, and so anytime that you're tackling those social determinants, you're hope you, you presumably are going to, to decrease the, you're going to de- be addressing, um, negative outcomes, um, which would include hopefully, um, decreasing the number of people that get exposure to the criminal justice system. Um, so absolutely that is, you know, there needs to be massive um, collaboration there as there would with any other stakeholder. I think the the difference between those two programs is that LEAD very specifically does diversions at the point of arrest, making it a non-arrest, if that makes sense. Um, whereas uh, the purview um, and exact mechanisms are are uh, different in basically other, other support programs. Um, but all of these are part of the the tapestry of uh, what it means to support people, of what it means to have a, a supportive community, mm-hmm. um, because no one component can, you know, tackle the ch- complex challenges that face people. So is the so when you say that the diversion happens at the point of the arrest, is it ultimately the police officer that's making the decision about who would be enter into the lead program? And the, and the difference there would be that instead of like a judge with a drug court where the judge is diverting somebody like the police officer is the one who says, okay, this person, I recognize that they have X, Y, and Z issues that um, qualify them for this, for the, for this program. And I'm going to make the decision as a police officer. I have the authority to do this, to divert them into this special program. Is that, is that basically how it works? So I'll speak in, in sort of the generalities, the lead model in different jurisdictions will be like slight shades of gray difference, but essentially there are a number of people that have to convert to, that have to, three different parties have to consent to the diversion Mm -hmm. or at least two, it depends on the situation. So the person being diverted has to test to consent. Um, the officer who would otherwise be making the arrest needs to consent, which is the component that you're talking about. Um, if, if there is a, um, a quote unquote victim. So let's say that a person is being diverted for shoplifting, the business would have to consent the person who is, um, Mm. Uh, the the person or the the entity or person that is is experiencing harm uh, would have to also consent, and then sort of pulling back a bit from that, um, officers you know have discretion in those contexts, but then the governing bodies are the ones that are creating um, the diversion criteria. So they're saying you know this is the rubric by which somebody could 
um, be divertible. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in that way, there's also a community consent, uh, you know, whether it's, it's, you know, government stakeholders or or anybody that's part of any of those governing, governing bodies, um, that results in those final diversion criteria and also their oversight. So just to help us understand this further. So once, once the person is diverted, Mm -hmm. it means they're not going to jail. So for that specific offense, for that specific offense, what happens to them? What does it mean to to be in the lead program? Then, what happens to them from that point on? Um, is there they're not mandated to go seek out any kind of treatment, right? Um, which is again different than a drug court, because in a drug right. court, it's like instead right. of being sent to prison or whatever, we're going to put you through this treatment program. Right. In this case, it's it's you know they're they're free to to go about their business. So what is the mechanism? Is there, is there some kind of mechanism to, I don't want to say compel because maybe that's too strong, but is there some kind of mechanism to like help them access services or can they, can they just continue using? Is that like, and they will not be arrested for. So a person being diverted. uh, And again, because the Ithaca program hasn't launched yet, I'm going to speak in generalities about what, about, about lead programs. Um, in, in general. Um, and so a, once a person has been diverted or basically brought into the lead program, they've consented, the officers consented, et cetera, um, that doesn't grant you immunity from future offenses. Um, or yeah, it doesn't grant you immunity. Um, and so what, what it does is, so once here's, here's the general, again, the shades of gray may vary by jurisdiction, but generally speaking, that process happens that I, I just explained all two or three parties consent, depending on the situation. Um, the person who is, who is being diverted to lead, um, makes, makes, uh, is then diverted into the, into the lead, but you, and then over a period of time, usually 30 days, they then have to have, fulfill the only requirement of the program, which is to do an intake meeting um, with the lead case manager, um, mm. which doesn't necessarily have to happen that night. They will probably make, or they, you know, if best practices, they would literally make face-to-face contact with that person that night. That person would come out to the field and basically the officer steps away and that that other support person takes over. Um, but they, you know, that moment, the chaos of that moment is not always the best time to have sort of a full the full intake meeting. So they need to complete that full intake meeting. Um, and then they're in lead. And so that person could theoretically, um, never, never make contact again. But what we've seen, mm. and this has been implemented in, in a number of different ways. And also it's not there, the, the folks that are involved with the lead program. So the case managers, members of the operations work group, um, which typically involve officers that are doing lead as well as of course the lead case managers, as well as local support providers. So folks from different local harm reduction agencies, from local treatment facilities, housing, really any, any, any entity in the supports, a local support system, um, will now be aware of, of the, the, the challenges that about that, that the challenges that that person may be trying to tackle in a more coordinated way. Um, and as a result, there may be the opportunity for greater outreach. And so what that person then has access to is, um, interaction with the case manager and sustained, um, intensive engagement with that person in a way that cannot be destabilized Mm. by a framework of compliance. So yes, if somebody, somebody could continue to absolutely continue to use, to use drugs, um, in the program. And that is foundational, um, Mm. to the program because the current way generally to zoom, zoom out from lead, one of the, the challenges, 
um, or, or design problems with how we typically address problematic drug use in the United States is that we tell people, well, okay, you have a problem using substances and we will not help you in any way, shape or form unless you stop using the substance first. Right. So first of all, it, it sort of undermines our acknowledgement of the initial condition, which is by definition challenges uh, associated with uh, moderating one substance use or, or changing the level of one substance use. Um, and it also means that we basically, um, in a, we're abandoning the people who are, who are at the highest risk, the people that are at the highest risk of overdose, the mm -hmm. people that are at the highest risk of endocarditis or of any other sort of negative consequence associated with drug use um, or the criminalization of people that use drugs are the people who are actively using drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and so what Lee does is say, hey, here's a stable presence in your life of somebody who will support you and and find ways to increment, you know, meet, make uh, positive changes in your life, um, regardless of, uh, sort of your compliance status, um, or, and not even talking about compliance. So that's, uh, you know, what you're mentioning there between like speaks to two different philosophies about how to approach drug addiction, right? There's the abstinence approach, which says you should never do it. And that's the ideal versus the harm reduction approach, which is where you're coming from with the drug policy alliance and a lot of these ideas like lead and the safer consumption space grow out of that approach which is that um you try to meet the individual where where they are instead of stigmatizing them and saying and and approaching drug addiction as a moral issue it, approaching it more as a public health as a health issue yeah as right? a health issue you i can elaborate on that yeah and i think uh i mean harm reduction's history now um because, I mean, the, the statistics that come out of harm reduction approaches are phenomenal. It's, it's you know, if you look at the literature, it's it's not really scientifically that controversial that you improve health outcomes. And so it's, it's moved into this really public health sort of framework, which is absolutely appropriate. But I would say, and I think an important thing to remember about the history of harm reduction um, is that it was, you know, maybe not even always that name used, but it was a movement that emerged um, from, you know, from and by people that were pushed to the margins. So um, people who were engaged in, in sex work, people, um, you know, people of color, trans people, and so forth that were using drugs at the margin and for whatever, for, for a combination of reasons, were not able to access um, support. And so the harm reduction movement actually also has a lot of history um, wrapped up um, in, uh, in, in, the history of the HIV AIDS crisis, because that was another situation where you had people that were very marginalized and at first not really getting the help that they needed. So people in these communities developed techniques um, to keep themselves safer than they would be otherwise. Um, and it was sort of, you know, a MacGyver do it yourself um, sort of way. And then, and that's been going on for decades. And in many ways, basically, since the beginning of time, people in complicated situations try to do the best they can um, with with the difficulties that they face. Um, and so more, more recently, um, it's moved more into the public health space, because the outcomes are just so phenomenal, which is a which is a great thing that it's starting to get, or that, uh, you know, it's really getting that that recognition, I think that, while there are other countries that have really implemented it in a more, um, it, it's much more central to th those cultures and those countries' approach to um, substance use. I, it's certainly picking up steam and mainstreaming in the United States too, which is really important because it saves lives and a lot of people are dying.
And I, and I think just, um, you know, just to say quickly that, I, you know, a lot of the stuff that you're doing is pretty cutting edge for the United States, right? And it's like really pushing the, the United States in, in a direction that's more similar to what some of these other countries have done. And I think also that does invite a lot of controversy. Um, and I think that there, and also just a lot of confusion, right? Because people don't, don't always understand what, what you're trying to do. And I think that's definitely, that's definitely been the case with the, the safe. I keep, I'm calling it a safer consumption space, even though I usually have called it a supervised injection site. Um, so I don't know if you want to segue into that. So yeah, about that. Um, what, what is the term that you prefer? Is it supervised injection facilities, safe consumption sites, something else? You know, they're places that save lives. I don't get too married to what the name is. Um, I, I can, I, I personally think that some of the conversations around names are really interesting. And I think that, um, those conversations are important because they help us unpack a bit what the values are behind safer consumption spaces. Or, or so, and that's safer consumption space, I would say, of the names that I've heard. Um, speaking for myself, I think very well captures, um, the spirit of them. It's a very comprehensive name. Um, you know, I know that New York City is calling them, uh, and, and New York State now is calling them overdose prevention centers, which oh. also makes a lot of sense to me. True. It's a center where people can come and get access to other things, you know, access to other supports, and it, it prevents death. And we're seeing an extraordinary amount of death due to overdoses that are one, as long as we're talking about an opioid overdose, these are completely 100% preventable deaths. Um, but yeah, I mean, to the term safer consumption, I like that it's safer and, mm. you know, it acknowledges that we're mitigating risk. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a space, um, which I think is an inviting name and also acknowledges if you look across the world, the different sorts of um, forms that these can take, you know, abroad, this isn't what's being discussed uh, here right now, but you have mobile safer consumption spaces or it's basically, it's a space where people can, not can avoid death and have it affirmed that their lives matter and and can receive the supports that they are ready ready for and or want um and consumption uh, also acknowledges that uh, there are multiple drugs that people use so um other countries are you know that not everybody injects their drugs so it's a, just a, a nice, robust name, and really that these places are about saving the lives and affirming the humanity of the people that use drugs. So, so can you walk us through what the mechanics of a user uh, would experience as they use one of these facilities? Sure. Um, so, a here, here. I mean, ge generally speaking, the model is as follows: a person that uses drugs um, brings pre-obtained drugs to a safer consumption space or an overdose prevention center. Um, they go into the overdose prevention center, and at that place, they are able to use that drug under medical supervision, um, which has a number of benefits. If that person starts to overdose, that person's life will be, will be saved. That person will not die because there'll be somebody uh, there who can save the life of that person. Um, and uh, they're also protected from some of the other harms that might be associated with use. So, for example, if you're talking about injection, uh, injection drug use, somebody that um, there are other harms associated with injection drug use in addition to overdose. So, for example, endocarditis um, is an infection, a very deadly infection, a very expensive infection um, um, of the blood vessels uh, 
that can kill you. Um, and it can often arise from improper um, injecting techniques. So a medical professional can also not only reduce harm by stopping a person from dying, um, but from also uh, helping that person uh, reduce the harms associated with the fact that they're using, say, hey, use a different angle when yeah, you're injecting. Um, and then that person uh, has a at the safer consumption space can then be um, connected with, with other supports. So let's say that person wants to detox from the drug, wants to detox and just quit drugs. There will be someone who can support them with that. Let's say that somebody doesn't want that, um, but you know, they want, as I just explained, safer injecting technique, or that person needs help with housing, um, or that person, you know, needs help with any myriad of things. Um, and I think most fundamentally, I think one of the, the, Mechani- the, the mechanisms of a safer consumption space, like you see some of these statistics, for example, coming out of uh, Insight in Canada, where people that use the safer consumption space, you see a 30% jump in the number of people that do actually enter detox services. Mm. Um, this is my opinion. I think that there is something absolutely, and it's measurably rehumanizing about having somebody bear witness um, to this highly stigmatized thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, that, that is so powerful and that that creates so much trust that then permits people to explore things that may feel risky. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Treatment. So more specific to Ithaca, and I should reiterate that there have been no concrete plans of any kind, but you, you made a comment to me once um, in private that I thought could for many people flip the switch uh, on how they view them. And... And what you said was, imagine that STAP, the Southern Tier AIDS Program, was the one um, implementing the Safer Consumption site. Whichever you prefer. Whatever. (laughs) Place Uh, where people don't die. (laughs) Exactly. Um, What what happened is, uh, STAP already runs a needle exchange. And um, if someone were to come in and grab their batch of needles, someone would just simply ask them, hey, would you mind using that here? And then direct them into a room. Yeah. Yeah, you stated that well, and I think, um, I think you're right. And I've I've explained it that way to other folks locally, and and even some folks who are still figuring out if they're supportive or not, and also folks who are supportive. And every time I see this light switch go off, because I think it answers some of the questions that it makes it less scary. It sounds like this big scary thing that they do, you know, in places that aren't America, um, and this big you know revolution revolutionary change. And it, it's it's a pretty practical small change and you just explained it well people that are already going to stop people that we already knows use drugs um people that you know a lot of you know one of the questions that i sometimes get is well how does this work if the drugs are illegal what sort of conflicts does that create with law enforcement um and if you look at what what stap does for folks that are listening that that, that may not know syringe exchange means essentially that people who you who are injecting drugs um can go to uh, the Southern Tier AIDS program, um, return or, or safely dispose of, of dirty syringes, um, and also get clean syringes. Um, they are not able to use on site. They're not getting drugs from there. They're just, you know, doing that. They can get access to or referrals to other support services while they're there. They can get access to Narcan, which is a life-saving overdose prevention drug. Um, but as is, that's what STAP does. Everybody knows that, or if you didn't know it, now you do, but that's what STAP does. Law enforcement knows they do that. And so every day there are people that go into STAP that, uh, presumably one could, 
guess that maybe that people go in that building because they're using drugs. I rent an office and stop, even though I don't work for them, I go in there. So, you know, there's, there are people that are entering that building that aren't using it for that reason, but it, law enforcement already know that. And the only change with a safer consumption space is if, uh, is exactly what, um, Doug just said that, um, instead of people going and using in a public place, you're actually taking that, that sort of drug use and you're re- reducing harm to the community as well, not just the person using drugs, because you're taking that public drug use out of the streets and, and, and putting it into this environment. And then those dirty needles are less likely to leave the building at all because somebody uses the drug and then they, uh, you know, properly dispose of the, properly dispose of the syringes. And, you know, as I'm sure a lot of listeners know, if you look around downtown, there's a lot of businesses that don't, aren't, you know, permitting folks to use their bathrooms anymore. Right. Um, and that's something that's right. we're yeah. seeing in a, a lot of communities across the United States because folks are worried about people using in their restrooms. And so that's what it means. People, people use now and, um, they just need a safer, they, you know, they need a safer place to use and that benefits them. And it also benefits the community. So you don't have to worry about, um, having a life threatening situation, on the premises of your of your business or in your park or, or the the needles that can be disposed of there, um, uh, you know, let somebody who who's in a better position to support the folks that are having that experience do that in a place where there's medical supervision. How about some some questions that come right out of the Ithaca Voice comment section? Oh, great! Such as, let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. Aren't, aren't we just <laughs> if if we support one of these facilities? Aren't we condoning drug use? Uh, we are not condoning drug use, but I appreciate you asking the question because that does get asked a lot. And I should say that 10 years ago, uh, you know, the first time I heard about a supervised consumption space, I was like, what? You know, because I got involved in this work because my friends were dying. Um, And I was in a facility that was pretty traditional. This was an abstinence facility. Um, You were kicked out for use very often. And I had friends get kicked out and then die because of that. So that's one of the consequences of turning your back on people, even if it comes from a place of good intentions. Um, and so I, compl- I, I not only understand that, that reaction, but there's a part of me that empathizes with it. And 10 years ago, I would have had that reaction. Um, but there's a few different ways to answer that question. Um, one would be, I mean, bottom line, you can't recover if you're dead. You can't, you know, you can't, you can't improve your health if you're dead. You can't do anything when you're dead except be be dead and whatever, you know, religious next world may exist. Um, and people are using drugs anyway. Um, so this isn't really a question of endorsing or condemning drug use. This is a question of keeping human beings alive. And it's also a question of just looking at the data about works, about what works. And it, it's pretty, I mean, the, the amount of data that supports safer consumption spaces is gargantuan. This isn't even something where we've had like a five-year test run. They've been around for almost four decades on on three continents in multiple countries. This is cross-cultural data. There have been millions of injections at safer consumption spaces, and not a single person um, has has ever died of an overdose at one. Um, and so, I mean, the, the, the number of lives that are being saved is astronomical, um, jurisdiction C cost savings. I mean, you prevent one emergency hospitalization for endocarditis and you, you know, depending on the nature of that stay, I mean, an an endocarditis hospitalization can cost tens of thousands of dollars. 
um, you know, the amount of public funds that that saves. You're seeing improvements in public safety, um, you know, reductions of, of uh, bloodborne illness, whether that be HIV or hepatitis C. And, you know, we're all sort of connected somehow on the fluid chain. So that, as they say, or a lot of people are, so that means that you're reducing that risk for everyone in the population, even people that aren't using drugs um, or and people that aren't injecting drugs. Um, and so the, the amount of data is just on all indicators for community health, fiscally, people that use drugs is just so positive and so consistent across context that um, one very simple answer to that is uh, that, you know, just look at look at the data. We're saving human life. And that that's really the base. That that's really it. What about the criticism that <clears throat> supervised injection site, safe consumption space. Whatever you want to call it. <laughs> will attract users to, to Ithaca. Like little old Ithaca is going to suddenly be inundated with That's right. People will come from 500 miles away to do drugs here and attract every drug dealer in the region and, to Ithaca. And connected to that, that um, you're going to see a, like a deterioration of public safety in, in, in neighborhoods where these are located. And, you know, Ithaca isn't really, isn't, it's it's not a big place, right? Um, I mean, where these other where the facilities have been opened, I think you know Vancouver, maybe Toronto. I mean, these are big cities, right? So, how do you address those concerns that one, it's going to attract a lot of drug use and a lot of drug dealers, and and two, that there's going to be some kind of like negative neighborhood impact? You know, sure, all very very good questions, and luckily I have good answers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. And I mean, and those are our common questions as well and reasonable, but, you know, luckily the answers are, are pretty powerful that, you know, first of all, I would go back to the data that in all of this research, you just simply don't see, um, an influx, um, in, in, of people traveling to the site. And there's a number of different reasons for that. Um, one of them is that people that are experiencing a chaotic relationship with drugs to, you know, are, are unlikely to get up and, 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 and be organized enough to sort of like, uh, uh, relocate themselves or, or make a large, you know, travel plan to go somewhere. I mean, safer consumption spaces typically, um, have the largest effect in the close vicinity of where mm-hmm. they are. And so the very simple answer is that, you know, these places, that's just not what we've seen with the data. And again, we have a lot of data. Um, and there have been a variety of um, si- lo- location sizes um, of places that, you know, a lot of Vancouver is, is one that gets mentioned a lot, which is obviously much bigger, um, but there are uh, smaller locations um, in Europe. Um, but the other thing I would say is that in this, it's really important to look at safer consumption spaces or the debate around safer consumption spaces in the United States in the historical context of um, discussions that were had during the HIV AIDS crisis um, uh, with respect to, to um, uh, syringe exchanges. And so because the the arguments that were made are basically identical. It was, you know, we're worried that this is going to attract drug use. We're worried it's going to condone drug use. We're worried that it's going to create a problem for law enforcement. And that question actually came up as well, specifically in New York State of, well, you know, we'll try this in New York City, but we, we don't really know what, what what the impact would be in a small community upstate. Um, and so because of that debate that happened previously, there was actually a delay in Ithaca's implementation of a syringe exchange um, 
and people, you know, died and got sick because of that. Um, local people and, um, syringe exchanges are one of the, the greatest public health success, success stories, um, of the, mm. of the 20th century. I mean, just, just dramatic, um, right. improvement metrics that you just don't see anywhere else. Um, and so, yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind is that, um, there are a number of different reasons why, I mean, there, there's sort of a longer conversation that could be had, but in short, that if you look at the different, where, where people are dying in the United States, often it gets framed as a really rural suburban problem. And that's not actually entirely accurate. Um, you know, if you look at certain areas, so for example, in New York city, the Bronx, um, has, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a death rate on par with West Virginia, which mm-hmm. often gets a lot mm-hmm. more attention in the press. Right. Um, but to the extent that this has been something that has hurt smaller areas, how could our solutions exclude those areas? Mm-hmm. Um, especially when there's so much data behind them. So it is essential um, to implement locally. And, and like we, you know, we, we already know the syringe exchange works here. Um, it would make perfect sense just to make this simple minor minor change and, and save some lives. Cause we know that Tompkins County uh, last year set a record for the number of, of overdose fatalities and that it's overdose rate had increased by 10 times in the previous 10 years, 1000%. So actually um, I'm glad you brought that up because there has been a nationwide spike in, in overdose related deaths. And I was wondering if you could talk about why that is, what's behind that. That's a great question. And unfortunately there are many, uh, there are many causes. There are many reasons why we're in this mess. Um, why you've seen such a sharp increase in the last couple of years has to do with the adulteration of the illicit supply. Um, and so first that meant fentanyl, and now you're starting to see car fentanyl. And these are substances that are much more deadly than heroin, um, and they're not showing up in the supply consistently. Uh, in inconsistent amounts, and that matters and increases the death rate as well. Um, I've, you know, so for example, if somebody is taking, uh, injecting what they perceive to be a stable amount of heroin, and their supply from their dealer gets adulterated um, with some fentanyl, they may have just taken a much more potent dose than they expected, and they may overdose and die. Um, and the same thing with carfentanil, which is much more deadly than fentanyl. Um, so part of what you're seeing where there's, there are these overdose spikes or even abatement of overdose. So there was an, actually an article in the New York Times, I believe it was last week, maybe a little bit earlier than that, about a town in Ohio um, where they've been doing you know, a lot of really great local things about saturating the local market with um, or the local population with naloxone, which is an overdose reversal drug. Um, and they've seen a, a pretty phenomenal decrease uh, over the last year or so of their overdose rate. But what they've also seen, um, which is not to discount a lot of that great local um, public health work that's happened um, with, from a harm reduction framework, but they've also seen a decrease in carfentanil um, in their in just the local supply um, within Ohio or within that region of Ohio. Um, and so there are a number of reasons why this is happening uh, to, to think about. So first of all, this is one of the consequences of a black market, right? This is a, this is when you don't have a regulated supply, this is what happens. And yeah. it's also a challenge that gets uh, exacerbated by a oversimplified narrative that just blames big pharma for what's happening, which isn't to say that there hasn't been a problem with uh, prescribing 
customs and and information and you know in getting good information to prescribers and to patients um but a lot of these increases of the death rate that you've seen in the last few years where you've just seen the line the the slope line go vertical have have uh, are happened at the same time as the implementation of PDMPs prescription mm-hmm. prescription drug monitoring programs which are essentially ways of which which are essentially programs that um uh, disincentive that, that make it harder. It basically cuts people off from their legal supply. Oh, wow. mm. So you have people that are already addicted. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And get pushed into like, the black talk market. About unintended consequences. Yeah. Right. Wow. So, um, with the safer consumption space, I mean, one difference with lead is that it's currently illegal under New York state law. So lead, we, if we could get our act together, we could set it up tomorrow. Uh, but the supervised injection space, I mean, we're really, waiting on the state to legalize this correct so um what is like based on your knowledge of you know you're with the drug policy alliance like what's the current status of those efforts to really try to push the state to to make this legal uh governor cuomo needs to make a very important gift this holiday season and that is the gift of life because his constituents are dying at record rates and all that needs to happen is the health department, which with this New York State Health Department, which reports to him, needs to authorize safer consumption space research pilots. That is the only thing that is holding this up. This is the same method that was used to f- implement the first syringe exchanges. Mm. Um, they were initially done through this exact same um, pilot structure. Mm. Um, and despite the fact that you have... Uh, you know, mayors like Mayor Bill de Blasio, the the New York, the NYPD in New York mm. City has has called for the authorization of these pilots. You know, the you know entities like mm. uh, and you know, of course, Mayor Myrick. How could I neglect to mention that who was actually the first one in the state to um, to go out um, and lead on that? And really, the rest of the state has been playing catch up to him. Um, and he, you know, what happened here in Ithaca really, I think, helped. Uh, you know, gave an example to the rest of the country. Um, but, you know, you're seeing the endorsements of medical associations, the American Medical Association, um, the New York uh, Association of Family Physicians. Um, and I- I'm not really sure why it's been so hard for Governor Cuomo to play catch up uh, because people are dying. And just like with HIV AIDS, and I think that this is, I mean, you guys are, are doing great here. You're both elected officials who have invited me to speak, you know, on this this podcast, and and you've been so wonderful in in, in local conversations, um, but just like we look back um, in disgust and judgment at politicians who fail to act during the HIV AIDS crisis, I think that it will be the same here. So you know, I'm hopeful uh, that he will, you know, without delay now, really, because we're out of time, um, authorize the pilots. Um, but until then, the people who elected him will continue to die. Another essential thing to think about. Um, and, and remember in trying to understand why so many people are dying right now from overdose, um, is the racist origin of the war on drugs. Our drug laws are all of racist origin at different, different points in our history. And certainly the history of opioids is, is no different. Um, so, you know, the solutions that we currently have, uh, or the, that, that we don't have right now, um, harm reduction solutions, all of these things that we know save lives. Um, have been around for decades. Um, other countries have, some other countries have been doing these for a while. Um, and one of the reasons why the United States is so behind uh, is because 
we, up until very recently, uh, perceived people that use drugs, and in particular that, that were using heroin, um, as quote-unquote inner city uh, and, and people of color. And more recently, that narrative has changed, although not necessarily the reality, but the narrative and public perception now um, is that people who use drugs uh, or people that in particular are dying of overdose from opioids um, are middle-class white people who live in rural and suburban areas. Now, when we perceived the face of drug use to be different, um, we reacted with a historic escalation of the incarceration of human beings um, that sets us apart from other countries and also sets us apart from any other time in history. Um, and once there was this, one of the things that's happened now is because this perception of who's using has changed, um, we're more willing to talk about um, public health. Uh, we're more willing to have an open discussion about words like recovery. Um, and we're more willing to consider harm reduction. But the fact of the matter is that if we had had the same compassion for communities that have been experiencing overdose for decades, the overdose crisis is not new. We've had a, you know, a recent spike in the numbers, but people have been experiencing substance use disorder and overdose for a long time. Um, and if we had reacted appropriately earlier, we would already have all this health infrastructure in place. Um, and that means that uh, we wouldn't be seeing the overdose rates that we're seeing right now. Um, and what I think is important to note there is that if we, uh, it teaches us the lesson or it's a demonstration that if you don't support people because you lack compassion for them or if you're not introspective about that, it eventually harms the whole society. And so right now our history of racism in terms of how we respond to drug use and chaotic drug use um, is now killing white people too. Not that it, it was killing white people before, but the the, the, the numbers are, are changing. And so the lesson, um, I think the important lesson is for all of us uh, is to try to be aware of when we're lacking compassion um, and to just not do that. We have to find solutions um, to, you know, both the harms associated with drugs and the harms associated with the drug war that lift up everybody, marginalized people, less marginalized people. Um, and we need to, uh, you know, create infrastructure so that we end the current crisis and we prevent future crises for all people. Well, related to that, and I know you've covered this already several times throughout uh, this interview, but because it's an issue that because it's a belief that makes me so angry, I want to bring it up again just to reiterate it. Um, and it is this view from some people that drug use is a moral failing. It's not a public health issue uh, as you know. more enlightened people are trying to frame it as. And so I'm, I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that specific viewpoint. Well, drug use is not a moral failing. Um, and there are a number of different reasons uh, reasons for that. All, everybody does something in varying degrees and varying forms um, that other people may judge as maladaptive. Some people eat a lot. Some people, um, you know, use drugs a lot. Some, you know, we all have sort of these avoidant things. Um, and going back to what I said in the opening about this sort of realization I had when I was at the resident or when I was in the residential facility um, that really struck me 
um, was the contrast of how the behavioral struggles that people experience, the responses to those were so different when there was a substance. So for example, um, I had a friend who, you know, was struggling with some substance use, had, you know, what a so-called, you know, what in so many words was called a relapse, um, left the uh, proximity of the facility and was promptly arrested. Um, to the facility's credit, it was a very traditional um, abstinence-based facility, but they you know, entered into an immediate sort of negotiation with local law enforcement to try to get this guy out of jail. Um, and it was sort of this, this big hoopla that was not helpful to him. It was a waste of police time, and it was certainly traumatic for the, the rest of us that were at the facility. Um, you know, on the other hand, I had a friend there who was struggling with bulimia, um, and she would relapse all the time. Um, but we know the police never got involved every time she relapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, and from, you know, a health perspective, both of those quote unquote relapses were taken seriously. They were discussed with the care team. You know, there was an assessment about why it happened, how there could be better support. Um, you know, was the, the framework wasn't perfect. There wasn't enough harm reduction at the place I was at, but there, that was disrupted by the presence of the the criminal justice system or sort of this more moralistic uh, way of looking at drug use. I think that another thing that's really important for people to understand is the extent to which trauma is a predictor of addiction. You can more, it is easier to, uh, there's a stronger connection between severe childhood trauma and addiction than there is even between a drug use and trauma. Um, so a lot of people may not know this, but for every drug out there, including heroin, less than 20% of the people who try it become addicted. It doesn't mean you should go out there and, you know, roll the dice. I'm not telling people, I'm not providing advice of any sort. Um, but it, it, it does change our understanding of why people use in certain ways, um, and should inform how we respond to them. Um, and you know, if you, you know, people that are, are, coming in to get support for truly chaotic drug use have suffered so greatly um, in ways that aren't even related to drugs. They have been failed by so many people in their lives, by so many different systems. Um, and I think that that was one of the reasons actually why I also got involved in this work is because I noticed, especially because the place I was at, there were a lot of people who were young adults, meaning, you know, hadn't turned 20 yet or in their early 20s. So really this cusp of the transition from childhood to adulthood. And what emerged for me from that experience was I noticed that there were all of these, at least in that that slice of my experience, that you had all of these children that had been failed by the adults in their lives, that had been, some of them, abused in just extraordinary ways that I hadn't even read about in books. Um, And the system and these different structures and some people that they were coming into contact with were not understanding or respecting the robustness of what they were going through and were basically saying, this is all your fault. And I mean, it's just the most crushing thing to, to see intimately see the struggle that somebody can experience as a child and have that child reach adulthood, kind of struggle with the transition and be told, well, this is all your fault. It's a repetition of the abuse. So I think that if we look at drug use in a moral way, it's uh, if the purpose of morality is to help people live better lives, I think quite measurably um, 
all we do is hurt the people that, that need the most support by looking at it that way. I mean, it seems to be like the, the real, the issue is, is do you, does the society take a punitive approach or more of a, a medical or I don't know what you want to call it, like a public health approach? Um, cause I mean, the only thing I can think of in my own life is like cigarettes, which I was very, very addicted to throughout my twenties and tried to kick three times and each time took probably a year and there was a lot of relapses. And I've often thought about this, that if, if every time I relapsed, like the police got involved, I would have been arrested hundreds of times probably. And, but that's not what happened, right? Because cigarettes are legal. They're discouraged, which I think is an important distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, because just because you legalize something doesn't mean that you're like, it's not like a wholesale invitation to like, to use this drug. You can, the society can still discourage the use of it as we do with tobacco. Um, but I mean, that's an example of it that society doesn't treat tobacco addiction in the same way that it does heroin addiction or, or addictions of illegal, illicit substances. And I think, you know, like it seems like the harm reduction philosophy is moving more in, in, in the direction of trying to treat, um, other drugs the way that we treat, say, alcohol or treat, um, you know, tobacco or, and now very quickly, I think in the state of New York, uh, soon marijuana. Yeah, that would be, that would be the hope. And I think that that, um, the cigarette analogy that you just gave is so powerful. And I think actually, um, to the point about marijuana in New York state, um, highlights something really important. So when we talk about marijuana legalization, um, a lot of, a lot of folks or conversations that have that have happened around marijuana are just like, okay, well, we should just legalize marijuana. But the fact of the matter is um, that historically, um, there are certain communities that have suffered more under marijuana's prohibition than others. Um, and so, for example, um, you know, imagine you you had been arrested every time you relapsed on that cigarette. Uh, that would be annoying. That might result in a night in jail. Um, but it would have a whole lot of other collateral consequences. It could mean that if you were a parent, you would have your kids taken from you permanently. It could mean, you know, into a closed adoption where you don't get to see your kids again. It could mean that you aren't eligible for scholarships. It can mean that you get raped in jail. That happened to one of my friends, too. They were arrested for something marijuana-related, and they got raped, and that is not healing at all. You know, it could mean that... Uh, it, it interferes with your ability to get employment. Um, and so part of the awfulness of that, that is awful regardless of who it happens to. But when that sort of harm is inflicted on entire communities and social networks and e- ecosystems of people, um, it's devastating. And as we know, like, you know, basically all of the drug war, um, that has been experienced um, primarily of poor people, people of color, and in the case of marijuana, um, in, and especially in New York State, um, black people. Um, and so when we try to undo the harms of prohibition, um, we have to be thoughtful about that in terms of how we implement it. So something that's really important in how we're looking at marijuana legalization in, in New York State um, is trying to look at how can we make sure that once a legal market is created, um, that the people that benefit from that are the people, all of that, you know, tax revenue that starts to come in, um, all of those folks that are able to, you know, 
make some money, make a lot of money off of the legalization of marijuana? Mm-hmm. Um, how can we prioritize the communities that have been so harmed, that have basically, through prohibition and its collateral consequences, had resources extracted from them? Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, some things that are foundational to the legislation um, that, you know, we at DPA are strongly supporting here in New York um, is, you know, it involves the sealing of records, which means that you can't, uh, you can't be excluded from uh, entering, you can still get a license even if you have um, a prior a prior conviction. It means making sure that there's not too much vertical in- integration in the industry, um, and that we're providing micro licenses so that the barrier to entry, um, in terms of initial capital that's needed, um, is is not so high um, that uh, that it's insurmountable for people that are already um, uh, experiencing marginalization, um, because you know legalizing marijuana or even quote unquote ending the drug war these aren't things that will uh end racism but if we're going to try to um undo the harms in which you know the drug the the drug war has been used as an instrument of racism um we better make sure that our solutions are are doing what we say they are which is is trying to address some of those those very serious harms um and that's why you know i i'm not re- I'm not a person that that uses marijuana. I actually I don't like how it smells. I'm like a complete nerd. <laughs> but for me, and I think this is so important. The first person to ever talk to me about marijuana legalization was um, a friend, and we were on our way back from a twelve step meeting, and we were just seeing really bad things happen to our friends. And this person was just like, "I can't take it anymore. There has to be a better way." And that was over ten years ago. At this point, so I mean, legalization of marijuana is not about marijuana. It is about human beings and the awful things that happen um, when human beings unnecessarily experience contact with the criminal justice system. Well, thanks so much, Catherine. I would yeah, encourage, um, I'll put this in the show notes, but I would encourage everyone follow Catherine on Twitter. Uh, her handle is K-C-E-L-E-N-T-A-N-O. K-C-E-L-E-N-T-A-N-O. Um, you always have really thoughtful things to post, which you know ex- extend my education and and openness to the world. But thanks again for being here with us tonight. Yeah, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.